Welcome to Happened Here. People, places, and the stories they tell. I'm Stephen Fry, host of this episode, Covent Garden in World War II. In the London of blackouts and bombs, rationing and loved ones going to war, Covent Garden adapted to the trials and tribulations thrown its way by Britain's fight against Nazi Germany. In this episode, we imagine a costermonger's daughter trying to get some sleep on an underground platform, discover what a coffin on a railway platform in Devon has to do with Covent Garden, and tell a story based on how the writer's grandparents met during World War II. Without further ado, let's begin. The Royal Opera House, Bow Street, Covent Garden. Put on your dancing shoes. Written and performed by Joanna Clark. Early evening, spring 1943. A queue snakes round Covent Garden's Royal Opera House. In the line, perhaps, is a Corporal James Barnes in the sandy-coloured uniform of the 7th British Armoured Division, recently home on leave from North Africa. The sky threatens rain, but he'll take a wait in soggy London over Rommel and the desert any day. Blimey, his older brother George exclaims. Quite the cue for a Thursday. George winks at James and gestures towards the pretty young ATS Lance Corporal in front of them. James catches a glimpse of the drawn-on stocking seams below her khaki army skirt. George leans forward. Been here before, miss? Nancy. The Lance Corporal smiles. No, first time. You're in for a treat, miss Nancy. George grins. I hope you brought your dancing shoes. This was not the Royal Opera House as people knew it, but now the Mecca Dance Hall opened at the start of the Second World War in 1939. The Home Secretary, Herbert Morrison, had announced that dancing should be excluded from recreations that are to be restricted to prevent interference with the war effort. After all, it is not proposed to make total war total misery. Tickets bought, sixpence off for those in uniform, Nancy and the Barnes brothers step into the auditorium to the bold brass sound of Teddy Foster's big band. The opera's seats, stage, sets and costumes are all stored in basements. The huge space is now a magnificent dance hall. The band sits on a compact tiered stage beneath the velvet curtain of the proscenium arch. The packed dance floor radiates heat and energy. There's barely any space between dancing couples. Figures in Air Force Blue and Army Khaki jitterbug with abandon. The crowd cheers as the band strikes up the Chattanooga choo-choo. Welcome home, Jim. George slaps him on the back and pushes him and Nancy onto the dance floor. Maybe for the first time since his return to England, James exhales. Taking Nancy's hand, he leads her into a Lindy Hop swing-out that Nancy executes perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> 
people flocked to dance halls in every town and village in Britain. As the magazine Britannia and Eve observed, it was almost as if the war was being conducted in swing time. Brits danced, allies danced, and American GIs introduced new dancing styles like the jive and the East Coast swing. Recreation was not without risk. In 1943, 83 people were killed when a dance hall in Putney was destroyed in an air raid. But the Royal Opera House, in its guise as the Mecca Dance Hall, was never hit and helped maintain morale and a sense of community for the armed forces on leave, civilians and those who worked in essential industries on the home front like George, a costermonger in Covent Garden's market. By the 28th of October 1945, when the music faded on the Mecca's last dance, an astonishing six million people had come dancing at the Royal Opera House. Cheers, George tells James and Nancy as they are jostled at the bar after half a dozen dances on the trot. James lifts his pint. Warm draught beer. He smacks his lips. You don't get that in the Sahara. Six million people. That's a lot of warm beer. People came to dance. The market stayed open. But the livelihoods of the market traders were seriously affected by the war. For the market's famous flower sellers in particular, getting produce to the market was becoming... tricky. Dawlish, Devon and Covent Garden, London. Mrs Smith's Coffin. Written by Joanna Clark. Performed by me, Stephen Fry. An unattended coffin lies on the London-bound railway platform at Dawlish Station, Devon, south-west England, topped by a wreath of violets and an official label. Great Western Railway. Destination London Paddington. Transfer for Mrs Smith, Covent Garden Piazza. A policeman prizes open the lid, and the waiting passengers nearby gasp. No corpse. The wooden box is stuffed to the brim with flowers, thousands of purple, sweet-smelling violets. It's 1943, and Britain is at war. Sadly, coffins are a common sight on the railways as bodies are returned to their loved ones. Had the owner of this coffin known their language of flowers better, the policeman might never have guessed it contained smuggled goods. The funeral wreath was the giveaway. Fern and moss were traditional for a funeral wreath, not violets. Violets meant modesty and fidelity, a keen spot from the policeman, but then he is a local. Unfortunately for flower growers in Devon and Cornwall, the war means a drastic restriction in the cultivation and transportation of their non-essential crops. The South West is famous for its cut flower trade, especially violets. 
However, as part of the war effort, acres devoted to flowers are being requisitioned to grow vegetables instead. Now it's mostly crates of agricultural produce that are being heaved into train carriages, helping to feed the hungry capital. But war has not slowed the demand for flowers. A dozen bunches of violets sold in Devon for four shillings, 20p, but in Covent Garden they'd fetch 24 shillings. With flowers banned from road and rail, wholesalers found inventive ways to get their produce to market. Cue the coffin. Or any kind of container, really. Passengers disembarking at London's Paddington Station would hold suitcases tight to their chests, a petal or stem peeking out through the clasp. Cauliflowers delivered to Covent Garden had their hearts scooped out and replaced with anemones. Smugglers faced six to twelve months of jail time or fines of £5,000 in today's money. Meanwhile, up in London, a Mrs Smith in a shabby apron peers into a lorry being unloaded at Covent Garden Market and asks the driver, Where's my coffin? He shrugs as he hands a crate of onions to a waiting porter. Sorry, love, it wasn't on the train with the rest of the crops. That's all I can tell you. Bitterly disappointed, Mrs Smith returns to her small flower stall, empty-handed. If coffins were a no-go, she'd need to get even more creative. Back to the drawing board. The coffins of soldiers killed and returning home were a frequent sight on Britain's railways, but civilians were in the front line too, during the Blitz. From October 1940 to June 1941, nearly 28,000 high-explosive bombs were dropped in Greater London, and nearly 30,000 civilians were killed. The Piazza and Bow Street, Covent Garden Keeping Calm and Carrying On Written by Joanna Clark Performed by Jasmine Elcock Sixteen-year-old Tilly Adams can't sleep. She wriggles but can't get comfortable on the cold, hard concrete floor. And then there's a noise. Chatter and nervous laughter echo around the tiled arches. And was that a rat? People are putting on a good front, but the atmosphere is brittle. She can feel it. Sleep, Tilly. Her father Robert puts a comforting hand on her shoulder. It's January 1941, and the Blitz continues to rage. For four months, the German air raids have been relentlessly bombing the capital. Well practised, the residents of Covent Garden, at the sound of the air raid siren, grab a small case of belongings and make their way to the underground station, one of the deepest in London. The platform is jam-packed. People are even lying between the rails of the track. Bam! The whole tunnel suddenly shakes. There are gasps and a few screams. Tilly's father tightens his grip on her arm. And then all is still. Chatter resumes. Tilly's heart begins to slow back down. That was definitely closer than usual. As day breaks, Tilly and her father trudge up the station stairs and out into the open. Something is wrong. 
the air is hot and filled with choking dust. Tilly stumbles over a broken beam, blackened, scorched, smoking. She smells gas. They hear shouts ahead. Tilly, stay back! Robert barks as he drops their bedding and runs towards the noise. But Tilly is swept along with the crowd. They turn onto Bow Street and it's instantly clear where the bomb has fallen. The five stories of a fruit warehouse have collapsed and a fire rages in its timbers. Rescue workers swarm the site. Debris is everywhere. A gas main has been ripped open, leaking gas pockets hindering access to the shelter below. There's people down there! Someone yells. Tilly finds she cannot take another step. She is numb and can only watch as her father and other market men join the firemen, attempting to move rubble and bring the flames under control. William Sansom, a member of the Auxiliary Fire Service, later described the scene as a macabre sight. The wooden-blocked market street littered with bricks and vegetables and straw. The grey iron and glass dome of Covent Garden reflecting on its remaining glass, that bright firelight. The lion-coloured palladium columns of the opera deeply shadowed. The spluttering roar of fire engines. The snakes of dead grey hose winding through the mud and water flooding the street. But most living of all in this street of nightmare were the unseen bodies entombed somewhere in the terrible breathing mound of debris. That was a powerless sight for those standing, trying, failing. The odds were too great. Twenty bodies were eventually recovered from the shelter beneath the warehouse. For costermongers like Robert, whose produce had been reduced to ash as the warehouse burned, the loss is twofold. At their stall, Tilly helps her father dust off and arrange what little remains of their stock. Traders would keep on trading. No amount of bombing could change that. She finds a crate of pears squashed by fallen bricks. Should we discount these, Dad? No. Let's hand them out in the shower tonight. It's been a rough day. Thankfully, the end of the war brought opera, ballet and flowers aplenty back to Covent Garden, although the popularity of the nosegay never returned to pre-war levels. In 2011, a memorial stone was unveiled at the entrance of the central avenue of the piazza to commemorate the porters and market gardeners who lost their lives in both World War I and World War II. We remember, and Covent Garden endures. Happened here, people, places, and the stories they tell. Hi, I'm Joanna, and I wrote the stories for this episode. The Dancing Shoes story has a personal element for me, as the characters are inspired by my grandparents, Jim and Nancy Clark, who met at a dance hall just after the war. My grandma was an ATS Lance Corporal, although thankfully my granddad was not called up to fight, as he was a steelworker. If you want to hear more stories like this, please come find us at happenedhere.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, tell your friends and leave us a kind review and a rating on your podcast platform of choice. But for now, everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, thank you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. Ah, happened here.